welcome to a special edition of Bulls in the Ring. We have uh, we haven't done this in a while, but we have a uh, interview. We have an interview with a podcaster, a writer, a director, a comedian, and someone who was on one of my favorite shows, Mr. Uh, Josh Denny. Welcome, Josh. Hey guys. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Excellent. I've been really wanting to uh, speak with you because I'm a huge fan of ginormous food, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, if we could just maybe, uh, for the people who don't know you, if we can get maybe just a quick, uh, you know, nickel tour of your biography. Yeah, I've been a, a stand-up for about 12 years now, almost 13, and uh, live in Los Angeles, and a few years ago I... I got a gig hosting a show for Food Network, as you mentioned, called Ginormous Food, and then, uh, which we ran for three seasons, it was a fun time, and then uh, I think it ended fall of 2017, we were done, or basically around Christmas time 2017, and uh, yeah, and since then I've just been working on stand-up and, and building my podcast, The Implications of Josh Denny. Yes. And you were originally born in Philly, Correct. I mean, yeah, just outside. Okay, because hmm. we're actually not far from there. We're we're on the border of uh, New York, Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Yeah. So yeah, I can tell. I can tell by the accent. <laughs> <laughs> but um, was the move to L.A. something that you you wanted? Did you not like the New York comedy scene, or did you feel you had a better opportunity moving out to L.A.? Well, I lived in um, I lived in Minneapolis at the end of high school. Or I lived in southern Minnesota, and I eventually moved to Minneapolis, um, and I've been there for about eleven years. So I, I kind of gradually made the move from East Coast to West Coast. In two thousand and nine, I had an opportunity with the company I was working for to either move to New York or L.A., and I picked L.A. just because of the weather, and I I, I like the scene more. Oh, you don't like the brutal winters? <laughs> <laughs> no, especially after 11 years in Minneapolis. I say, yeah. Brutal <laughs> Doesn't get any more brutal than that. <laughs> no. But at least you have good beer and brats there. <laughs> That's what I hear. Now, you, you uh, wrote for uh, Anthony Jeselnik. Well, I wasn't a writer on the show. Right. I, I appeared on, uh, I did a, a game segment with them, uh, which was a fun a fun day. And what, what else have you been in? Just so if anyone wants to, you know, look you up and see. Yeah, people go to my website, uh, joshfannycomedy.com. You can see all the different clips. I've, I've done a lot of short films and, uh, uh, like, web series shorts, things like that. And uh, I did that spot on Jesselnick. Uh, I was on Home and Family uh, doing press for Ginormous Food. And then I, you can catch some of uh, the clips from the Ginormous Food Show on there as well. But the best place to see all the stuff I've done is on, on my website. And you do you did put out two one-hour uh, comedy stand-up episode, or, uh, shows, correct? Yeah, they were albums. So I have an album from 2008 uh, called Honest Brutality, and then another hour <laughs> from 2012 called uh, Social Hand Grenades. And you can get those on iTunes. Google Play Store, pretty much anywhere where you can download and listen to music. Spotify, it's on everything. Excellent. Now, with Jeselnik, is he, the way that he portrays himself, is that how he really is all the time? 
would say like the Caden's like, like just his sort of demeanor uh, is kind of like that. He's very sarcastic and, and kind of quick with people, and you know, I would say he probably doesn't lay it on his stick in person. But uh, you know, yeah, that's that's pretty much his personality. All right. Just if it is a character, he rarely breaks character, at least from what I've seen. Hmm. All right. Now, getting into my favorite show, Ginormous Food. I, I'm a big guy. I like eating, you know, big hearty meals. Um, we actually had a fantasy football draft last night that I think we ate. I don't know how many wings. It was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, we pound. <laughs> we were pounding down wings like it was going out of style. I'm actually. Hurt, I was hurting this morning from it. But what was your like favorite meal or favorite meals out on that show? I'd say number one, and people ask me, this is funny, it's the question I get the most about the show. People are like, what's the best thing you ate? And still to this day, the best thing, you know, that I, I swear that we ate on the show was uh, a dish called the Battle Royale, which we did at Pepper Fire Hot Chicken in Nashville. And I don't know if you remember the episode, but it was the weirdest thing. It's a deep fried grilled cheese sandwich with hot chicken tenders on top of it, oh. and then apple pie filling on top of that. And it sounds like the most ridiculous thing you'll ever hear. But it was it was by far the best thing we ate the entire season. And even like at the end of the that was in season one, but even by the end of season three we were still craving that, that dish again. Where is this? <laughs> this is at Pe- Pepper Fire Hot Chicken in Nashville. Nashville? Got it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if you're gonna go down to any Titans games or anything, that's a place you have to Yeah, have to I'll have to check you it know, out. Everybody everybody talks about Hattie B's uh, as the hot chicken place in Nashville. And all the other Food Network shows and stuff go there all the time. But, I mean, I think Pepper Fire is light years ahead in terms of flavor and the experience. And the whole place just seems cleaner and more fun. And, you know, it doesn't have the history, I think, that Hattie B's has. But I think their food is way better. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that that just does sound delicious. You got the the spicy, you get the sweet with the apple, the grilled cheese. Anything fried is great. Grilled cheese on there. Yeah, and the, and the texture, I mean, it's like a great mixture of textures because you have the really crunchy deep-fried grilled cheese underneath, and then you've got, you know, the, the spicy with the, the chicken tenders and then the, um, the the apple pie filling on top, the hot and the sweetness and the gooiness, it just sets the whole thing off. My mouth is watering just thinking about it. Yeah, mine is now, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. Was there any place that you went and you just thought, how can they serve this? Because it's just so massive. Like, were you just, like, blown away by any particular dishes, just size and... Yeah. I mean, you know, it got, in season two, it got a little ridiculous. Like, it got to the point where I feel like the producers were calling these restaurants and going, like, okay, you make this big thing, but how big can you make it exactly? (laughs) I mean, like, when we showed up for the very first episode we filmed in Atlanta... We went to the same restaurant we shot the sizzle with. So when you audition for a show like this, it's actually a really long process because they it's not like a, a network thing where casting people come in and you just you audition in the room and you either book it in the room or you don't book it and then you go to a set in the studio and you perform on the show. This is the kind of thing where it's like really long and drawn out. So... Um, we, we did, I did like a self-tape, and then we shot a sizzle in Atlanta, and then we got money to shoot a pilot, which we did, you know, three days of filming in San Antonio, 
and then the series got ordered, and then we filmed the first season. So when we shot The Sizzle in Atlanta, we shot at this place called, um, uh, I think it's just, is it Henry's Louisiana Kitchen? I think that's what it is. I could be completely wrong about that. But, um, but anyway, the guy who, um, the guy who owns it is a dude named Henry, uh, and he, he's like from, I think Baton Rouge, and now lives in, uh, Ackworth, Georgia, and um, Henry Henry's Louisiana Grill. So we filmed the sizzle there, and we did like a three-foot po'boy, and we didn't get to get back to them for an episode in season one, but they were the first place we shot in season two. And when I got back to that restaurant, they were like, all right, now the po'boy's nine feet long. I was like, what are we doing? Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's just, it was just like, some of those things got to the point where it's like we were just trying to have really interesting shots on the show, but... You know, you're cutting stuff up and serving it to the entire restaurant anyway, so everything ends up being kind of like family style. Hmm. But, um, you know, I'd say that, and then the Thanksgiving burger, the, the Gobbler burger that we did in Atlanta, I think it was actually in uh, maybe Decatur. I can't We were in a suburb of Georgia. But that that burger was ridiculous. That thing was like 25 pounds. <laughs> and just, just trying to take a bite out of it was, was absurd. We ended up having to cut it like a birthday cake to what was what was in that burger? Uh, <coughs> so the turkey burger we made and it actually made it in a cheesecake tin. So you put <laughs> they put the entire thing in a giant cheesecake tin. I think the patty alone was like ten pounds, Yikes. and then they you know sear it and bake it, and then it had uh, cranberry sauce stuffing. Uh, it had green bean casserole. I remember that was like a very distinct, different thing that they put in it, but it was really good. And then the entire thing is built on like a custom bun. So that's the other thing that's kind of cool about our show is that everything that everything that they did to kind of come up with the stuff is all custom. All the rolls and buns, for the most part, had to be custom baked at nearby bakeries. And so it's it's cool how these projects almost turn into like a community event. Hmm. Well, but I would have loved to have been able to show some of that background, like when they're like, "Yeah, we had to, you know, get these buns." Specially made for these burgers, it would have been cool to go to that place as well and see how they do all that stuff. So, oh yeah, especially if it's got to hold a ten-pound burger. Yeah, shit. Right. And, well, and you know, there's probably tons of tons of situations where they were doing it and it failed, and you know, so I I always thought it would be cool to show more of that stuff. You know, I felt like our our show was always kind of like a highlight reel where it's like this is the best it's gonna look on the best day with a restaurant full of people and. You know, I, I wanted to pivot the show in a direction that told a little bit more of the story of, like, why people want to make stuff like this and then all of the work that goes into developing it and, and executing it. Oh, I get that. Yeah. I mean, the one good thing I, I did appreciate, and you did say it was kind of like a community thing, was, you know, at the end after you had this mammoth, you know, burger or sandwich or whatever it was, is that you split it up for everyone to have, you know. Me, I would have been a glutton, and I would have just tried to eat it myself. But I mean, I, I give you props for doing that. That's how heart attacks happen. Yeah, <laughs> I have a question. Yeah, and that's a complete. That's a different show than ours. <laughs> yeah. Even though the host, even though the host looks very similar. Yeah. I was gonna say, is there is there is there a ginger rivalry here? Not really. You know, uh, I've always liked Casey, and he's always been very friendly with me online. We we chatted back and forth because we were actually working. Scripts at the same time, 
but there, I gotta be honest, there was definitely a moment like when he was announced and he was hired. I was like, well, this this definitely looks like they just drafted my replacement. <laughs> I felt like the free agent quarterback who just broke a shitload of records, and then all of a sudden they took a quarterback in the first round. I was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> It's actually, and uh, I guess we're going to give a spoiler here, but we uh, we tentatively do have him on for an interview coming up next month. So it, it was oh, like go. we we got a package deal with you guys here. It we're, seems we're replacing you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's par for the course. So yeah, I mean, I think his process was a little bit different. Uh, he's talked about it in interviews before, where he he attended a open casting call and uh, ended up. You know, it's probably doing a bunch of different screen tests and stuff too. But we joke back and forth that Courtney over at Script has a thing for a thing for husky redheads, apparently. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to do look or you got to look at it this way. He is punishing himself by eating some of these things. So, I mean, at least you weren't killing yourself. You know, hopping down ghost peppers and eating, you know, gallons of uh, milkshakes, things like that. So, I mean, I think you had the the more. Um, better for your health, better for you not having heartburn and everything else than him, so. Yeah, that's a brutal gig, and it's funny because we talked about uh, when I was there filming the pilot for Ginormous, you know, we didn't know if that show was going to get picked up or not at all, and I was talking with Neil, who was one of the producers at Food Network, at the, well, at Travel Channel. Our show was originally supposed to be on Travel Channel, mm-hmm. and it tested so well we got promoted to the Food Network. I was talking with him while we were in development. He said, you know, if this show doesn't go, we're thinking about bringing back Man vs. Food. Like, would you be interested in that? I said, yeah, I definitely would. But I was like, but to be honest, uh, I said, I think the only way that show is interesting again is if you do it with, like, a chick. I was like, if you do it with a female host who can really put food away, I think that makes (laughs) the show new and different. And I said, you know, you're definitely, you're, you're pivoting a little bit. I was like, I, I think it would be a hit if you brought it back with a woman. And then they just brought it back with, like, another me. And I was like, okay, I'm, you know, it'll do fine. And the show does fine, but it's like, it, that show, what it is right now, is a great example of what they do well. They, they, they lock in hosts on long-term deals for shit money, and these guys will do, like, 200 episodes or whatever, you know, whatever they can squeeze out of them. And... You know, if for all the things that I don't like about Adam Richman, we're, we were very similar in the sense of, you know, we both kind of did deals that bet on ourselves, and he did really well, and ultimately it came down to they didn't want to pay him for what he was worth and what the show was rating, and we kind of fell in the same situation. Like, our show was one of the highest premiered shows on Food Network in many, many years. You know, they, did, they, they premiered like three or four other shows that year, one was Jeff Dunham, one was Hannah Hartz. Those shows all premiered with about 600,000 viewers. We premiered with 1.6 million hmm. uh, in the live plus threes. And so, you know, we were a hit show. And I basically signed a deal that said, hey, if we hit these numbers and we extend the contract, the money goes up quite a bit. And so we kind of like performed and priced ourselves out. So. You know, we this was kind of happening when they made the announcement that Casey was coming back to host Man vs. Food, and I was like, okay, so this is pretty much the writing on the wall for our show, and then everything kind of fell exactly where we expected it to from there. 
Not to mention, I'm a far more outspoken comedian and personality than Casey, and I probably am a, a lot less agreeable to work with in terms of what I do outside <laughs> of the Food Network. Oh yeah, don't you worry, we're going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, I guess maybe just a few more quick food questions. Sure. Have you always been a foodie? Is this like something that you love? I mean, you oh, grew yeah, up in... man. Like, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get this body overnight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say the same thing, but I drink a lot, so... <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't drink. I can't imagine how big I would be if I did. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I've been a food guy the entire time, you know, since I was a little kid. So, uh, you know, I, I did a good job of keeping the weight off for the most part until I was probably in high school, and then I started to pack it on pretty well. But... Um, yeah, the, uh, the, you know, when I had corporate jobs and everything, and you've got the, the daily expense account and everything like that, we would travel around the country with the different companies I worked for before I, I switched to doing comedy full-time. And, you know, my, my evenings were completely centered around, like, where are we eating tonight? So I kind of got to tour the country, you know, with some of the jobs that I had and hit restaurants everywhere before I ever got to the Food Network. So it was kind of like... Uh, it, it was kind of like a pastime of mine before I ever went pro, you know? Excellent. Now, being from Philly, who has the best cheesesteak? Is it Pat's, Geno's, or Tony Luke's? It's none of the three. Okay. <laughs> Alessandro's is the best cheesesteak in Philly. What's the name of it? Because I'm writing this down. <laughs> Alessandro's? It's like two miles north of Independence Hall. Okay. If that, it might even be cool. It might, it might even be like one mile. But it's just outside the city, and uh, that's the best cheesesteak. All right, because we were, I was actually in, well, I was right outside of Philly. I was in uh, Camden maybe about a month ago. So, and we were running late, and I wanted to get in there to get a sandwich, but the wife talked me out of it, and then we ended up going to uh, Atlantic City, and I got one of my favorite sandwiches there, so. Yeah, when it comes to uh, Philly, like my, my place for cheesesteaks is Alessandro's. I always hit up John's Roast Pork, which is like my favorite. That's my favorite sandwich probably in the entire uh, in the entire world. And that's probably that was probably a precursor to my rival, my short-lived rivalry with Adam Richmond on Twitter, because he's like a huge Denick's fan. Which is Denick's yeah. is a a place in uh, Grand Central Market in Philly, and it's like the pretentious of the pork sandwiches. And John's roast pork is a fucking white trash, uh, you know, out in the middle of the hood pork sandwich place. That's like a, a place that real Philadelphians will go sit outside in the freezing weather and eat. And so, you know, it, that was that should have been a, an inkling that he and I would never get along because I'm a John's guy and he's a Denick's guy. <laughs> I was actually just going to say that because I, I remember him... Um having the one show where he did like the best sandwiches and, you, and he, he did, gave the Knicks the best right? yeah he, he put yeah. the Knicks as the best so I just wrote down John's too so next time I'm there I'm gonna be uh getting fatter with some uh sandwiches so yeah see the Knicks does it classic with the broccoli rob what I like about John's is they do it with like a hot spinach so they kind of they kind of uh roast the the spinach the same way you would do broccoli rob they put like hot peppers and stuff in it. Oh man, it's like, it, dude, John's roast pork. I think is the best thing in the country in terms of sandwiches. All right, now I got two places and, I'm and definitely if, hitting. 
yeah, gun to my head, if I had one day left in Philly and there was only one place I would eat, it's going to be John's over any of the cheesesteak places by far. And you know what's amazing to me is I live in L.A., and there's like a handful of cheesesteak places in L.A. They're all okay. There's not a single place you can get a Philadelphia roast pork out here. I was like, I should, I should buy a food truck and just drive that thing around and fling pork. Yeah, like that's what I find weird. When you, I mean, maybe just from always living on the uh, East Coast, like you think about like, you know, pizza from Chicago and from New York. You think of like certain regional foods. To me, I don't really know what, like, L.A., would it be, like, almost like Mexican street food would be their, their niche? Like, yeah, what's... probably a mix between, like, Mexican and, I would say, Korean barbecue. Hmm. And any fusion of those two things is very popular out here. That, and is sushi a big thing out there? It just seems, from us being yeah, East Coasters. I mean, yes, yes and no. I, you know, sushi's like high society. There, there is a really good... <laughs> hole-in-the-wall sushi place in my neighborhood that I love, uh, and there's also one in West Hollywood, it's called Nico Nico Sushi, which I really like, but, you know, I like, I, you know, I honestly, I think New York is better for sushi because it's all these little hole-in-the-wall places, it's like real Japanese people that have lived there for 60 years, so I, I just like the experience of eating sushi in New York more than L.A., <coughs> Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, like unless you're going to a place that's fifty bucks a plate, you're really not getting the quality. People are like, "Oh, the seafood quality has to be way better in L.A." It's like, no, it's not. Like, it's not necessarily better because you know the places that don't want to charge too much still buy the cheap shit. No, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's the problem where we are. There, there was one good sushi place by us. It was up in Newburgh, and uh, Red Ginger they called it. And that closed down, and right now it's it's hard to find a good place. I mean, other than yeah. going to like a mom and pop, you know, Japanese little hole in the wall sushi place. Unless we go yeah, down to the city, so our director David and I went and got sushi. I think we, I don't know if we went and got it in New York or we got it in Jersey. I we, I know we did both, but I can't remember which place we went to that was better. But um, yeah, I mean, just like just walking around Manhattan and finding like you could literally find an amazing sushi place like behind a dumpster you know what I mean and so that, <laughs> I, that to me is I, I like exploring that side of cuisine Italian food and sushi I'm way bigger on in New York in LA I generally tend to lean towards like Korean barbecue or Korean fusion and um, and uh, Mexican food oh yeah I, I mean I'll eat anything you, you could put something in a shoe and I'll eat it like a sandwich. Yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a place that does that. But. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, you have your own podcast, so we appreciate you coming on ours. Um, yeah, man. And you want to... I'm always looking for new ones. Right now, I really haven't been listening to anything other than fantasy football ones for probably the past, like, two months, just so I can get ready for the season. But I'm gonna. yours is going to be thrown right onto my uh, queue. I looked at it. You, you, you want to tell us a little bit about it? What it's what it's based off of? What you like to talk about? Anything yeah, along those lines? Know, it's, it's kind of funny because like anybody, anytime anybody tells me to, or asks me to describe it, it's like, well, I have an idea of what it's supposed to be, but a lot you guys know, like conversations yeah. on podcasts can go in any direction. Oh, so yeah. The the general premise of the show is to kind of talk about 
current events and world issues and and then to kind of shoehorn in horrible solutions, you know, for comedic effect. <laughs> and so, you know, like a perfect example. I like we this. Episode, yeah, we did an episode on homelessness where I proposed, you know, forced cannibalism might be a nice <laughs> alternative. You know, if we just started eating people, we could thin the population in L.A. and, and fix a lot of these problems. Oh, and, I always... You know, the, the, idea, the idea of the podcast for me, selfishly, is to kind of riff with other comedians and to potentially come up with, you know, stuff that ends up becoming stand-up material. So out of that episode where we kind of joked about that, I was like, oh, you know, like, uh, we could make it sexy and start doing, like, human sushi. And then we got into, like, Planned Parenthood. And we're like, okay, if he defund Planned Parenthood, what are we going to do with all those fetuses? I smell a sushi bar. So... <laughs> You know, it's, it's just like, it's intended to be silly and absurd and crazy. But then there are times where this, like this episode that's about to come out, like I'll have somebody on who just has an interesting story or interesting life story. And my buddy, uh, Carl Spitali, who's a comedian here in L.A., uh, he played football at Temple, played for the CFL for a bit. Um, and so but with it being football season and with us being all geeked about watching Hard Knocks, we ended up talking for almost three hours about football and kind of in a roundabout way talked about the fact that a lot of these school shootings, uh, you could directly tie back to the fact that I think young kids don't play competitive sports as much. Mm -hmm. I, think fo I think football shapes right. a lot of, of young men learning how to win and lose. And I think a lot of the problem that you're seeing today is you have a whole generation of kids who never learned how to cope with losing. And then when you combine that with social media and people constantly looking and at everyone thinking everyone else is winning, it creates this, this vacuous feeling of emptiness and loss that, you know, this younger generation just doesn't know how to cope with. And they, they turn to, then, then, this another, then they get to that point and they over-medicate with SSRI drugs which makes them numb to empathy and humanity. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that it's a perfect cocktail for mass shooters. Absolutely. I, oh, I agree that, with you 100%. That, that, that was a nailed that one. Yeah, and so, you know, like, if, if we put it out, like, the you know, the episode, I could title the episode of, you know, fix school shootings by playing more football. People would be like, how the fuck do you tie those two things together? Well, we do. And, it, and so that's kind of the fun of the show is, like, I do try to have an idea ahead of time of what we want to talk about, but I also try to leave some space to where we can sort of organically arrive at points like that and say, you know, if kids did more martial arts and played more football these days, they probably would be less violent as they enter adulthood. Oh, 100%. They're getting their aggression out that way. So not. You never see the star quarterback shooting up a school or a Walmart. Yeah. So. That's a great point. You know, they just if you if you pay attention to television, though, they'll make you believe he's out raping everybody. Yeah. He doesn't have time to shoot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's still an asshole, but he's not killing people. Yeah. That, that's the trope that I get really, really tired of. Is like watching shows. Like we just finished watching that show Euphoria on HBO. I watched that. It's like, the, the, the bad kid now is the star quarterback in every show. Like, yeah. white, six foot four white quarterback is just the villain in every movie about high school. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, I guess that's the way it works, you know? Yeah, and he's, he's the he's biggest piece of shit on that show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. But that's the way they write them. And, yeah. and it's been that way. It's the same thing on that show, 13 Reasons Why, on Netflix. Yeah. Like, that kid's <laughs> the star quarterback. It's just like. It's amazing to me 
and this is the kind of stuff that I, you, you, if you follow me on Twitter, you see any of the shit I tweet about, it's like, I look at those things and go, is anybody else seeing this? It would be like if five shows in a row came out with like a, a young black kid who got a girl knocked up and like uh, left her and the kid and, and committed himself to a life of crime and people would just go, boy, this is a horrible stereotype to perpetuate <laughs> for black culture. But yet we do it with, like, there's nobody back to deny at the evil white quarterback. Do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. So now yeah. we have an entire generation growing up thinking all white kids are privileged white quarterbacks yep. who have trust funds and rape women. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's what they want. They want you to think anyone who plays football is bad and anyone yep. who's white is bad and all that other shit. Yeah, it's like, so, you know, as a comedian, it's my job to look out into the world and call bullshit when I think the narrative is not... It is not true and not truthful and not being honest. And, uh, you know, that's what I try to do. Nice. So, I mean, if no one really got this so far, and just to catch everyone up, you are a huge liberal, correct? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Is like, if Ten years ago, I would have said yes, but it's amazing how my beliefs really haven't changed, but the way that they're they're uh, categorized now is completely different like I, I, didn't, I don't believe anything differently than I did when I started doing comedy 12 years ago uh, and you, you would have considered me as, as staunchly liberal as you could have imagined back then I think I voted for Obama the first time and you know um, and now everything that a guy like me believes is considered Republican and conservative I mean to be pro free speech pro second amendment to want small government, more personal freedom, like that's considered conservative. It's amazing to me how quickly the world has sort of uh, rotated mm -hmm. in that way. 100%. And, you, you know, you look at, like, the group Antifa and how they, you know, they, they're fighting for the little guy and this and that. It's really the opposite. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, they're supposed to be anti-fascism and their whole, their whole thing is... Well, you don't think what we think, so we've got to kill you and eradicate you from the planet. Like, yeah. It sounds a lot like these other guys that wore brown shirts in the 30s. Yeah, <laughs> conform or, you know, die. Right, exactly. Like, And, and you know, it's so funny. I used to have this bit, and maybe I need to resurrect it because it's more relevant, but I, I picked on the phrase, the right side of history. And I go, nobody who's done evil shit throughout history has ever thought they were going to be on the wrong side of it. The Nazis thought they were on the right side of history. So did the Mongols. So did the Roman Empire. They don't. You don't really know that you're the bad guys until history is written and people can look back on what you did. And so these guys are the same. These Antifa guys, these extreme left people, uh, you know, are going to look back and go, "What the fuck are you thinking?" You know. Oh, hundred percent. And I mean, it. I give you a lot of credit for you know being. I don't want to say outspoken about it, but saying what's on your mind being that way, because when you look at, and we'll use your occupation, comedy as a whole, it's not that way. There's very few guys, um, I really don't consider him a comedian, but I do listen to his podcast, I think he's hilarious, and he's been on your show, uh, Gavin McGinnis, oh, yeah. and someone like Nick DiPaolo, another guy I listen to, that... What they say resonates so much, but they'll never get any type of credit, any type of support. It's amazing. But there is, I don't want to say a movement, but for the amount of 
negativity that's placed on your opinions to have the following that you guys do is it's incredible and it just shows that people really do think this way it's not what the media tells us it's not you know it's not the same old thing the the boot licking you know butt kissing other side of the political spectrum if you will well, in a way, a lot of us are in positions where we, we don't really have anything to lose by doing it either. Like, we, you know, and so I, I think people like Gavin and my, I throw Milo in the mix as well. I mean, these people will go down as the Nostradamuses of our time because, they, you know, they're, I look at them as modern-day philosophers that, you know, are predicting culture. Like, Gavin predicted this Trump movement. Milo predicted that these guys were on the front side of this movement. And it's so funny because, I don't know if you guys listen to Tim Dillon, but he just did a whole episode on the Epstein thing. And he said, okay, you can give Alex Jones a hard time for Sandy Hook, but when it comes to this Epstein thing and the child sex scandals, and this guy's been screaming about this stuff for 15 years and everyone wants to call him a lunatic, and it turns out he's right. I mean, like, at what point do you stop and, and smell the roses and be like, these people are right more than they're wrong? And, you know, the thing about Milo and Gavin, and, my, and I'm guilty of this too, is a lot of times we use extreme uh, examples and a lot of sarcasm and satire to make our points. And so it's easy for people to write them off. But these guys end up being right a hell of a lot more than they're wrong. Oh, absolutely. And the worst part is, is that you may say something as a satire and it's just taken completely out of context and run right through, you know, the grinder. Right. And it's just sad that 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 this is the way that it's portrayed. But you have people, you know, like Kathy Griffin holding, you know, the the severed Trump head and and Snoop Dogg and and they're looked at like martyrs. It's just it's sickening. Well, I think, you know, people want to deplatform uh, people like Gavin and people like Alex and people like Milo because they're effective, right? Like, I, the, the reason I haven't been deplatformed is I'm not doing a podcast or a, or a web show for millions of people. I don't have that kind of reach. But if I did, I could guarantee you that I, I would have dealt with some of the same problems that these guys have and even Owen Benjamin as well and mm-hmm. so oh, yeah, Owen. you know it's like I understand and by the way like I don't agree with all of these guys on all of the things that they believe but I absolutely 100% defend their right to say it and I'm one of these guys where it's just like I, I nothing infuriates me more than people trying to use this general feeling of dissent towards people with their ideas to just assign beliefs to them that aren't real. Like, the thing that drives me nuts is people call me a racist because I've done racial comedy in my career. People call Gavin McGinnis a racist. It's like, we have significant others that are not white. He has mixed children. It's like, how much are people willing to ignore the facts? <laughs> oh. just try to stick to these narratives. That this, oh, the guy's a white supremacist. It's like, I, I just, I, <laughs> I always picture in my head, like, this picture of, of Gavin, like, in Africa, feeding starving children and people being like, Nazi, run death camps in Africa. Like, there's just the willingness to ignore truth 
just stick to this narrative idea that, that some people, it's like the orange man bad thing. I mean, like the New York Times article last week that, that they changed the headline on because the general public was like, you're not making Trump look bad, you're making him look good. And they go, well, we thought we were just telling the truth. And they go, no, no, you got to change it, make him look bad. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, I mean, if, if he, if even for one month, if everyone just put their dislike away for him, and just tried to tell the truth, one, and work with him to get stuff done, think of how much more could be done with his success right now to what it would be with actual cooperation. Oh, I know. Well, and the one that drives me nuts about is, like, all anyone wants to talk about now anymore is that he's racist. And it's like, okay, him and maybe every other president that's ever been a president, are his policies racist? Is he enacting policies that are intended to hold parts of society back? I mean, everybody's forgetting that Van Jones, who's like an extreme liberal, went on the news and basically said, listen, in terms of trying to help the black community with criminal justice reform, Donald Trump is way out ahead of the Democrats in this category. And everybody's pretending like that didn't happen. And that, 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 that first act or first rights act or whatever that he signed to get nonviolent drug offenders out of jail. Everybody wants to pretend like that didn't happen. You know what I mean? And it's like, this guy's trying to do things to bring the country together and try and do things that benefit people in all economic situations of all races, as long as they're American citizens. Mm. And so this continuous narrative thing, you know, well, every Republican is racist, and Donald Trump is racist, and he's a dog-whistling white supremacist. It's just like it's all intended to discredit any positive things that the dude does. Oh, you're 100% correct in that. I mean, you look at uh, Kamala Harris. When when she was the DA, how many people did she put away for minor drug offenses? I mean, Too many. Yeah. Too many. I mean, she, she, I mean, again, like she put, it's exactly like Tulsi said, she put more black people in prison in California for nonviolent drug offenses than any other criminal prosecuting district attorney. I mean, she was, she behaved like a religious, fanatical Republican uh, justice. And no, you know, people, it's amazing to me how, like, liberals, well, they, they don't even know what her voting record is like. They don't even know. They're just like, yeah, it's the black woman. Yeah, that's who we want. Like, Dude, she is repu- she is like, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's the VP? Mike Pence. She's like Mike Pence light. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like she's as bad for black people as Mike Pence is for gay people. But everyone wants to ignore the truth and just look at the optics. Oh, you're. I mean, nailed it on the head there. I mean, I just find it, you know. I guess maybe I should refer it a different way. How do you? survive in such a left-wing type of state like that? Like, I mean, like, every day, do you just, like, walk and just shake your head? Yeah, but I will tell you this. The state is not left-wing. California, keep in mind, California elected two very famous, popular Republican governors. One was Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mm -hmm. and the other one was Ronald Reagan. And so California is actually a very conservative state. The problem is it's very hard for conservatives to fundraise out here because of all of the virtue signaling, money-loaded liberals. And so you get these suave, uh, 
pussy politicians like Gavin Newsom and Ted Lieu and these guys that just make backdoor deals and and uh, take money and do corrupt shit. I mean, how does the richest state in the country have a section of a major downtown area that looks like a third world war zone? The fact that Skid Row exists six miles away from where Jay-Z lives, I mean, you sh- this government in this state should be overthrown by now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you and... You talk about corruption, I mean, that's... that. If, if you look at Robocop from the 80s, you think it was shot in downtown L.A. today. And it's supposed to be this post-apocalyptic future where crime is out of control. It looks like downtown L.A. right now in 2019. Wow. It's crazy. I mean, unfortunately, we're from New York, so we get kind of the same thing. Um, if it wasn't yeah, for... You know, I was explaining this to somebody. You know what the difference is about New York? You guys had one group of people that were able to help fix it. It was the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> That is true. And so, and so, you know, all those quote-unquote crack-related drug deaths that happened in the 80s and 90s, that wasn't, that wasn't drug addicts killing each other. It was the mafia going in and whacking people to reclaim property so that you guys could get the Prudential Center instead of crack houses. <laughs> true. So, you know, when you when you look at those things, there's there's... None of that element is really in Los Angeles, but I, I will say this. If a charismatic, well-spoken, young conservative ran for office here in California, I think you'd be surprised how well they would do. You know, the problem is the, the Republicans that run out here are all like 65-year-old, uh, you know, investment firm billionaires. And so, you know, it just, it just is the compelling, it just continues to compel the narrative that, conservatives are rich, evil, white billionaires. Um, and those those people will never get elected in California, but with the homelessness problem out here, if you had a, a, an aggressive young conservative candidate run for governor out here and say, listen, I'm just going to go clean it up, you know, a little, a little Trumpism in terms of the way he campaigned and say, listen, elect me in and I'll take a fucking bulldozer to it. Uh, that person would get elected overnight because that's the only thing anybody cares about right now in California. Oh, the housing problem, but more importantly, the drug and homelessness problem. Yeah, I mean, we always hear about, like, um, San Francisco, which is just, like, a wasteland now. You're saying Skid Row in L.A. Is it pretty much just every city, like, major city there that's just kind of has this? Like, is Sacramento that way? San, you know, San Jose? No, Sacramento, Sacramento and San Diego are not. It's amazing. San Diego has nowhere near the homelessness problem that Los Angeles has. And I think that's because San Diego has historically been pretty conservative in terms of the way their their local government is run. Yeah, because I mean... But our, our police aren't even allowed to touch homeless people's belongings on the streets. So, like, they could literally roll up on a tent city see 10 people shooting up and they're not allowed to break anything down they can arrest people for possession or public intoxication but other than that they can't do anything to those encampments I mean that's just it's absolutely dehumanizing when you think about it that these people are able to destroy their lives and we're not even attempting to help them we're just letting them live it out well, and, and it's like, it's sort of, it, it's interesting, too, because it's sort of like, when people talk about libertarianism, which is how I identify, they're like, oh, you want an every man for themselves with no empathy or sympathy, 
and uh, and you want people to starve in the streets without government help. Well, we live in a liberal state that's had democratic, you know, governors and, and congressmen and women for the longest time. We have the most entitlement uh, programs and things like that in California, and it doesn't really look like it's helping them at all. So, you know, what people don't understand is I feel like when you put libertarian or conservative policy into play, I think you end up getting better results, the results that you're intending to get, versus this idea that, well, we're just going to create all these programs for all these entitlements. Inevitably, they all become corrupt. Inevitably, they all, the money never gets to where it's supposed to go, and and the people end up going without anyway. I mean, that's why socialism, great example, sounds great in principle, right? Every place throughout the world that's ever enacted it it fails because of what? Because governments are corrupt, and they just go, "What's well, keep all the money?" Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm the I'm the the dictator, or I'm the president of that country. I'm going to eat <coughs> steak while my you know while my people eat pigeons. But we're going to have everyone have yeah. everyone's going to have a pigeon, a pigeon in every pot. Yeah, liberalism and socialism uh, is ultimately corrupted because the ruling class thinks they know best. And California is filled with people that think they know best. You know, that's a big part of... You don't have to look farther than television. People go on, you know, people like Taylor Swift or Beyonce or, uh, you know, these people who haven't spent a day in government service in their entire lives uh, go on Twitter and they're like, here's who you should vote for. You know, here's here's what you should believe. Here's what you should think. I know best. Mm. I'm a singer. Like... It's unbelievable the audacity that these people have. You know who I want to listen to? A guy like Dan Crenshaw, a guy who served his country, a guy who sacrificed a lot to to serve this country and who understands uh, what Americans really want, what Americans really care about. I think that guy's your dark horse for president in uh, 2024. Oh, absolutely. And the best part about it is anyone fucks with us and he gets on there with that eye patch. They're going to think twice. <laughs> he, he was just on Rogan, and I want to tweet at Joe and be like, Yo, Joe, what does it take for you to put my man Crenshaw together with Elon Musk and get my guy a robot eye? We can't make that shit happen. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I want a guy with, I want a president with a cyborg pirate eye that just shoots lasers into stuff. I mean, I want him, I want him to be full Terminator by the time he gets into office. Oh, and he could fucking do it too. <laughs> oh yeah, be great. Uh, yeah, I, how do you not want a president with a with a robot eye patch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, like who who could deny that guy? <laughs> yeah, he comes into a meeting. He is he is set the the room that he is the alpha. Yeah, it's just like all right, you're cool, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anybody, yeah, I'm sorry. Has anybody else in the room lost their eye to an IUD? Okay, uh, so I'll speak on this one. Oh, one hundred percent. But I think we're entering a time where we need, you know, like we need a wartime president. I think we need somebody like a Tulsi Gabbard or a, or a Dan Crenshaw, somebody who has served in these wars and that, that foreign leaders aren't going to fuck with. It, it isn't any of these. It isn't Elizabeth Warren. You know, it isn't. Uh, and I think I think Trump's got the swagger. But the problem is, you know, he, he doesn't have a ton of military experience. He, I think he went to military school. He actually went to military he, school right by us. Yeah, he didn't serve, but, uh, but you know, you need somebody. He's definitely got the, uh, the don't fuck with us demeanor, which I think is working well at staving off the people that intend to do us harm. But, 
you know, I, I think we're headed to a place where we need a president who is going to be able to lead us through some shit. And uh, I, I think Crenshaw is a great guy. I, I really hope he runs after uh, after Trump. I imagine slam dunks this second term. So. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we do have Pete Buttigieg, right? I mean, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is the opposite of Dan Crenshaw. I imagine <laughs> in a world leader summit, the best hope America has is that Pete Buttigieg can suck everybody off well enough to where they don't want to fire missiles at us anymore. <laughs> as imposing as a box of kittens. <laughs> I, exactly. He's like, I did service. It's like, yeah, we know what service you did. You were definitely. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't he in the Navy too to perpetuate that stereotype? A little semen? <laughs> yeah, I think he was in the Navy. <laughs> now, when it comes to some of the people that you have on, um, again, I haven't I haven't listened to the podcast. So I'm definitely going to do it. Is there anyone that you've gotten into like a really good argument with that is maybe the first episode I should listen to? Any good debates? Say, I don't know about. All about arguments. I mean, we I, we've had some heated exchanges back and forth with people. Like, you know, I, I'll have some heated back and forth. One of the first episodes we did with Rich Slayton was pretty good that way. But uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of tough because you know I, I don't really get emotional and, and heated when it comes to discussing things. I just try to beat people with better points. And uh, you know, and and also the intention is for the episode to to be funny and entertaining so it's less about being right and more about being you know funny in a lot of ways but uh yeah i mean i i I think some of the best episodes are the ones i did with gavin um you know there are some pretty good ones with i I like the one with leah mcsweeney uh where we just talked about uh the toxicity of feminism today um you know, so there's a lot of different, there's some really good ones that you go back. I mean, we've done about almost 50 episodes now, hmm. and uh, th- there's a lot that I'll go back and listen to, and I'm like, oh, that was actually a pretty good episode. The, the second episode I did with Rich Slayton, where we kind of get into guns, uh, which I thought was pretty good, and, and, and Rich is a pretty well-informed guy on that stuff, so... You know, I'd say the most, in terms of the episodes that end up being the absolute most insane, is anytime I have Sam Tripoli on, uh, <laughs> it, it, it just goes off into a million directions because Sam is like the ultimate conspiracy theorist. And another guy who a lot of our friends are like, ah, oh, you know, Sam, Sam's out there on a lot of things. Like, yeah, but he's also right on a lot of things. All right. Now, being in LA and do you I, I know that a lot of the comedians up here use like the comedy sellers their uh, you know their, where they sit there and they start to really hone their new material things along those lines in LA is there anything that's kind of like that a small you know club that you can kind of really hone your craft at yeah, the cellar is definitely the place in New York. The comedy store, I would say, is, is the place of all places in Los Angeles. It's getting a little bit harder to get time there because it's such a hot club. Dude, that's the and, place uh, to be. Anybody, yeah. anybody who's anybody wants to be up in that room, so you kind of have to have some decent credits to get regular spots in that club. Hmm. Uh, or unless, you know, if you work there as a door guy or something, those guys get regular spots throughout the week, too. 
But that's definitely the club you want to be at. I think that's one of the few clubs that has a guaranteed built-in audience of people that truly love comedy. So there's no better litmus test for how good your stuff is than the comedy store. Like if you can kill it, if you can kill in the main room at the comedy store, then you can go on the road and do well in most places. Um, as far as small clubs go, you know the one that I love is the Ice House in Pasadena. It's one of the oldest comedy clubs in the country, and uh, they have three rooms there. And I do Brian Redband's show in the small room uh, a few times a year, and uh, it's a great it's a great club. It's a great place, and it's run by one of my favorite people in LA uh, on the comedy club management side, uh, Dee Burdett, who's just like a true believer in what comedy is and what it's supposed to be and she does a great job of building lineups like every she ran the improv when i first moved to la and now she's running the ice house and you know she just gets it man she just understands that like comedy is timeless it's generational you know you can have you can have nights where you have somebody like a Bo burnham in the club and then the next night she'll have ron white you know, it's like she understands that, that there are all different kinds of comics with all different kinds of audiences. And, uh, you know, you've only got seven nights of the week to fill up. You can, you can appeal to a very specific audience each night and, and keep a pretty, pretty busy club. And so I, I think she's only been back in, into it for like three or four months, but I love what I'm seeing out of the Ice House. And uh, I'm hoping to run my show there uh, going into the fall and winter, so... We have a show that we do around L.A. called The Darkest Hour. We've done it a couple different venues now, and uh, I definitely want to try to get it over at the Ice House. Okay. Now, I guess this is like a little side note. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, we've, we actually had uh, interviews with other people before, and they've they've dipped their toe into uh, comedy. Uh, we don't know if you know them, but uh, Raquel Pomplum or Irina Voronino, have you ever... Yeah. You don't know them? No, I don't think so. Okay. Like I said, I I just, I didn't know, it seems like the New York comedy scene, especially like listening to a, a few of the podcasts and, and things along those lines, it seems to be a very small-knit community, and if you're kind of in, you're in. Is L.A. not that way? Yeah, L.A. is kind of like, more like pockets. So, you know, I feel like in New York, everybody kind of knows everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. goes to a lot of the same clubs. Um in New York, I mean, there's like there's guys that are really primarily ice house guys. There are guys that are primarily uh, comedy store guys, improv guys, laugh factory guys, and so people kind of get in with certain clubs and then they just sort of hang out with those with the comics that also do those clubs. I mean, the people that all do comedy and magic together in Hermosa Beach, they kind of tend to book each other on shows all around that area and other parts of the city. So. Um, it's kind of clicky that way. That was but, the exact uh, term I was going to use. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure New York is a little bit the same way. Like, you know, the the old school O&A guys kind of have their own circle, mm. like Norton and Bobby Kelly. and uh, <coughs> I would put Louie in that mix. Um, but, but then you got guys like Attell who kind of bounce around everywhere. You know what I mean? Like Dave Attell, I've seen Dave go to alt rooms. He'll do the cellar. He'll do the Village Underground. He'll do the stand. I mean, Dave Tell's never met a stage he doesn't like. So <laughs> I try to I try to follow in that in those footsteps of being like, um, you know, I'll I'll go anywhere people want to book me or have me on a show or whatever, especially if I, if it was paid gig. But uh, you know, I, I feel like you, you got to learn how to do all the different types of rooms. And 
uh, my next project that I'm working on is actually uh, a thing where I'm going to take the same 20 minute set to four different distinctly different comedy clubs and um, film not just the sets but also reactions from the audience of, of what they liked and what they didn't like and why I think it'll be interesting I think it'll be interesting to take the same set of jokes and do them in front of a black audience a gay audience <laughs> Uh, mainstream comedy club audience and then like an alternative room audience and to see what things people gravitate towards. I think you'll find out that people universally agree on what's funny. I just think that they very much differ on why or why they think something should or shouldn't be funny. And that's what I hope to to prove in this next project that I'm working on. It's funny you say that because I'm a big documentary guy and you, if that was like premise for a documentary, I think it would be gold. And you don't yeah, see a well, lot of that with that, comedy. That might actually be that might actually be what it is. I'm trying not to give too much away. But okay. I would say your intuition on that is, uh, is solid. Nice. Perfect. Now, what is your favorite city to do comedy in? Oh man, you know I, I'm so biased because I started there, but it's, it'll always be Minneapolis. Just because I feel like, you know, that's home. Uh, I've always, that's where I started doing stand-up. Uh, I just love it. I love it there. And, um, you know, there's there's just something special about doing those rooms and seeing old friendly faces. And um, it just takes me back to, you know, to where, when it, when it first began and when it was pure and just fun. You know, like, the first year I did comedy, I probably got up every single night at a different open mic around the city and it would be comedy clubs uh, two times a week, and then you're just in bars the other, you know, five nights a week, and you're bouncing around the city. And it's, at the time, it was like me and maybe 20 other comics in the entire city. And so you'd see the same eight or nine guys every night, and you're just always working on new stuff, always working on new material. I mean, uh, that will always have a soft spot for me. And, and it was great to be able to start in a market with that few comics because you, you were basically guaranteed to get a spot every night at every room. And um, I got a lot of reps in early in my career because I came up in a scene like that. I can't imagine what it's like starting out in New York or L.A. And, you know, there's 3,000 comedians all vying for the same, you know, 100 spots a night or whatever. Oh, yeah. It, I always think that being... We actually had this as a, a topic on the podcast, um, our podcast, a few weeks ago. I was always wanting to be the um, the best AAA player. Maybe you're in a smaller area, you know, but you're really good at what you do there, as opposed to being like a you know utility player in the pros. But we argued about yeah. that, so I kind of see where you're coming from with that. Well, there's different schools of thought, but um, <laughs> I de- I definitely think there's a lot to be said. There was a so I was in music before I was in comedy, and one of my favorite bands of all time is a band called Nonpoint. And oh, I Elias love Nonpoint. Non- yeah, so non- Elias from Nonpoint, uh, I, I met him when I was like 19, and I was in a band and stuff, and I talked to him about like, oh, you know, I just don't know how big our band can get in Minneapolis. And he said, let me tell you something, don't ever leave the market you're in until you are the best player in that market and he was like if we go home to Fort Lauderdale right now we can sell out any venue any size for any amount of money and until you can do that don't worry about going on the road don't worry about 
you know, uh, trying to go out and move to a bigger market. Don't worry about any of those things. Just dominate the place you grew up in. And I think a lot of comics probably move before they do that. Uh, mm-hmm. My buddy Corey is probably a good example of somebody who did. And Corey, Corey Adams, uh, you know, he's had a couple of hit albums on iTunes. He's still in Minneapolis, but if that dude put together a headlining set, he could probably fill any room in Minnesota. And I think you should probably get to that level before you move to a major market. Mm-hmm. Because if you're irrelevant in Minnesota, you're sure as shit going to be irrelevant in Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now... Uh, I think I think some people, you know, just have this mindset of like, oh, I'm smarter, and my, my, intel- my comedy is more intelligent, so I have to go to one of these big markets so people get me. And now, especially in the era of podcasting, if people don't know you, they're not going to show up to get you. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. They're going to go see all the other guys they listen to throughout the week on their podcast. People like Tim Dillon, Brendan Schaub, uh, Tony Hinchcliffe, Brian Redband, Andrew Santino. I mean, podcasts are what make these guys seat fillers. And, and, you know, if they're solid comedians, which a lot of them are, that's just a bonus, you know, and then that helps grow their thing even faster and harder. Oh, I'm, and I mean, speaking of Schaub, I mean, you look at him, and he is hilarious. I'm not, I don't want to sound the wrong way when I say this, but because he was so, I guess you could say, popular as a fighter, and he kind of had a different background, coming in, he had that name recognition that really kind of pushed him, and he really is backing it up, because he is, I, I think he's hilarious. And I mean, well, and this is, you know, people try to drag Schaub about his special saying it was like terrible or whatever and I was like yeah Brendan Schaub's special was light years ahead of where most people are three years into comedy oh absolutely like, I did a special one year into comedy and I pray to God nobody ever fucking sees it you know what I mean like <laughs> so you know he, he's light years ahead for a guy that's three years in but the bottom line is there are some of these guys like a Schaub who are celebrities who decide to get into comedy and the ones that want to do the work become great at it and Shaw does the work Shaw gets up every single he doesn't have to get up every night he's fine financially with the money he made from Fighter and the Kid and Below the Belt and the Big Brown Breakdown all the shows that he does all the podcasts he does financially he's set he doesn't have to do comedy he doesn't have to do stand up but that dude is in a room somewhere in LA every single night putting in the time and trying to get better and he's he's going to be fine. He's already hilarious for a guy that's only been doing this for three years. And he'll be he'll be a murderer. He'll be as much of a murderer as guys like Rogan and everybody else when he when he gets the time in the game. And there and I think Jeremy Piven's another one. Jeremy Piven's a guy who doesn't need to do comedy but loves it, wants to do it, and is working really hard at getting good at it. And then there are other guys, and I'll throw the names out there, people like a Michael Rosenbaum who I love as an actor, but he started doing comedy like two years ago. I think he did it for three to six months and then stopped. And because these guys, they and some of these guys come in and they go like, well, I've been on all these TV shows. I should just be headlining. Yeah. Like, that's not how it works, dog. Like, Stick to Lex Luthor. Yeah. Yeah, there are yeah, comics like Dom Herrera who have never really starred in anything, but Dom Herrera's been around for 20 plus years, and Dom Herrera will fucking bury you on stage if you don't know how to do stand-up. And so, hmm. you think you're going to get stage time over Dom because you were Lex Luthor and Smallville? Fuck you. 
Oh, and you you could put him in any club in Atlanta. He could literally go from every casino in Atlantic City because he's there all the time and sell out every single night and just kill it. So, yeah. I mean, you you go back and you'll watch like old episodes of Seinfeld, and Dom Herrera is doing a guest star on Seinfeld in like '94. I mean, he's been around forever, mm-hmm. and every comedian knows Dom. But if you ask somebody off the street, you know Dom Herrera, they'd be like, oh, I don't know. They, if, but if you played him a bit or you played him a clip or something, then they would probably recognize his voice or recognize his material. But he's not a guy who has a million TV credits and sells out arenas, but his comedy is at that level. And there are a lot of guys who can't, like, I, I agree with you. You could drop Dom almost anywhere in the country and he'll destroy. Anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Any politics. Any demographic, Dom Herrera will destroy. And uh, and the problem with comedy is there are dozens of guys at that level that are that don't have the credits of these dudes who come in and they think, well, I'm 40 and the acting is slowing down, so I'm going to start doing stand-up. And it's like, you might have an Instagram following, but there is no faking it. When you get on stage and you got 15 minutes, you can't just go up there and dick around. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's. It, it, I think that we're pretty funny when we when we talk, and you know, a lot of uh, the people that we know say that we're good. But I could never think of having to go up on stage for fifteen minutes and put everything like make that fifteen minutes be an hour where you're just up there killing it every time. And yeah, I mean, it it's an incredible thing for someone to be able to go up there, knock it out of the park, and walk off and. Do it the next night, mm-hmm. every night. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 easy to well, make your friends laugh, but strangers is a completely different yeah. animal. Yeah, and that's a tough thing. I mean, to be funny on purpose and intentional, yeah, is a whole different ball game than just being the guy who's really good off the cuff. My brother's a great example. My brother can hold court. My brother's like a, an Irish Joey Diaz. If you put <laughs> him in a, if you put him in the green room with all those comedians there and was like had him telling stories. He'd, he'd murder, right? But if you put a microphone in his hand on stage, it might be a whole different story. You have no idea how it yeah. would go. Uh, so, you know, it's a different thing, man. It's a, it's a different beast. And, I, you know, even though I've been doing it for so long, I still have so much respect for how hard it is, how long it takes to be really good at it, and how much you have to just keep writing and keep performing. Well, even that, and just the, the thing of going up in front of strangers, I mean... I was, uh, my partner here, Joe, I was his best man at a wedding, and at work, I make people laugh all the time, I'm very comfortable being up in, in public speaking in certain aspects, but when I was doing his uh, best man speech, I mean, he saw it, I was literally, the, the paper in my hand that I was reading from was shaking like a leaf, to just yeah. have that wherewithal to be up there and not... I don't want to say not care, but be able to just do it and rib like that is is amazing. And I give you all the credit in the world. It's something that, I mean, after doing that speech, kind of made me think like, public speaking is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they say it's a lot. It's most people's fear, right? Like number one is death. Number two is public speaking. Uh, that's definitely mine. Yeah, I just looked at. Jo- I just thought of Joe naked. That's why. <laughs> But we, uh, 
we want to know, are you ever going to come over to, to this side of the, uh, the country? Yeah, I'd definitely like to. I mean, I, I love the audiences there. I don't know if New York is still, uh, it's still, a, you know, it's still the place out there. From what I've heard from other comics, it sounds like New York is almost <coughs> more politically correct than Los Angeles. But, but I know you get outside and you get into, like, Brooklyn, you get into Jersey City, you get into Long Island. Like, there's still good blue-collar people out in those areas. You know, and obviously Philadelphia we're all trash buckets. So, you know, I, I think you can still have fun in a lot of those areas, Boston. Uh, and I got a lot of friends who are really good comics in those areas that I just love to perform with. So just for that reason alone, I want to try to put something together. But, you know, at this point in my career, a lot of the shows I do are self-financed, self-promoted, self-produced. So you got to have a little bit of scratch to put together, uh, you know, tours like mm -hmm. that. And so when I, when I can and when I, when I do, I definitely will. Well, if you can ever come up, and it's it's away from the city, it's actually in a mall, um, the Palisades Mall up in, uh, what is it, Nyack? Nyack, yeah. It's uh, Levity yeah, Live. Nyack, right? Yep, Levity Live. And if you can come up there, we will be there front row center to hear you. <laughs> and like I said, it's far enough away from the city, it's that we don't have to worry. guys I work with, he actually does uh, security at um, a, it's, it used to be like, I guess, an old theater up in uh, Peekskill, New York, and he says when they get, and they get pretty big names there, it, it, he said it's like raucous there, like, it, everyone is just cheering, everyone's engaged, and it's a small club, and he says it's like, he, he loves going to do that as a side gig because he, he gets a show every time, and he's within yeah. a few feet of the people. It's intimate. It's, you know, really good for him. Yeah, I love those small clubs. Like, give me a, give me a 120-seater with low ceilings any day of the week, man. I love those intimate, small clubs. Everybody's up on you. You know, it's just, it's so, it's so much fun. You know, I, I've, the biggest venue I've ever done was, like, I think a 3,000-seat theater in Wisconsin. And, uh... You know, that, that's fun in a different way, but it, it's just, it, there's no connection really with the audience when you're performing like that. And so I'll, I'll definitely take the small club vibe over the, the arena vibe any day. But, uh, you know, the, the big club, the big clubs come with the big money, so I think that's why we, that's where we all want to be, right? Oh, yeah. Now, I have a question. With, uh, listen to a lot of uh, comedians, they all say they want like a low ceiling. I've never really got to ask this. What is the reason for that? Is it better acoustics? Is it what? What's the reason why everyone wants a low ceiling? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, <coughs> the, the club I just did back in May in Minneapolis, uh, Rick Bronson's House of Comedy, is in the Mall of America, 
and they have like an open ceiling, so it's a very tall building. It's like the top floor of the Mall of America, and so it's like open with rafters and everything else. And uh, the laughter just escapes up into the ceiling, so like it doesn't really come forward. The sound goes sort of straight up into the giant cavernous room, and so. The tricky thing about that is, like, you can have a joke that really hits and really kills, and what happens in a lot of rooms is the laughter, it, you, it becomes infectious. Well, when it escapes the room, fewer and fewer people join in because they can't hear themselves laughing as well, they can't hear people immediately around them laugh as well, and so it, it kind of makes the audience a little bit more self-conscious, and you know, it, it doesn't reverberate and bounce back the way that it does in a small club with, you know, low ceilings. All right. You know, the thing about a small club with low ceilings is like a giggle in the back of the room can can just ripple throughout the entire show and, and can really make for fun special moments. You know, what you've seen it, when you watch specials on TV and they're doing these giant theaters, the laughter, it sounds like a wave, right? Yeah. And you don't want the wave, you want a firecracker. You want it to just go off. And in a smaller room, it's easier to create that, that sound effect than when you're in a theater or in a big, you know, a big room. Huh. It, it totally makes sense, and it answered my question. I've been, I've been yearning to ask a comedian that question for a while. So <clears throat> Now, do you have anything, uh, any... Uh, gigs that you have coming up now that you want to promote? Anything that you want to you're yeah, excited about? LA stuff. I mean, sometimes I, I've been doing a lot of stuff on the quiet lately, just w- working on new material, writing stuff. But I'll have some shows coming up here uh, in LA that people could come out to, and then you know I, I'd like to try to get into the uh, onto the East Coast somewhere in the fall. So I don't know. We'll we'll look at that. I got a bunch of fr- like I said, a bunch of friends on the East Coast. And people like Gavin that aren't necessarily even stand-ups, but Gavin is somebody I feel like I would love to just go on the road with and do shows, whether they're like live podcasts or a mixture of live podcasts and stand-up or whatever. But, you know, any anytime I can get together with my buddies, people that I enjoy talking to, and get out on the road and do something live, you know, that's what I want to do. So I'm hoping to get something going here in the fall. All right. Well, if you talk to Gavin, tell him I'm a big fan. Like I said, I, if it wasn't for uh, fantasy football, I'd be catching up on his show. He's been he's been getting there, and like I said, I got to sit there and get yours uh, caught up on. So he's a, he, you know, I, I love guys like that. Like he's not necessarily a stand up, but I'll tell you what, he's probably naturally funnier than ninety percent of the stand ups out there. Hmm. Oh yeah, I, I laugh my balls off when I'm listening to him. <laughs> so I consider him a comedian because you know he makes me laugh as much as most stand ups. Oh yeah. All right. Well, if you have anything uh, you want to promote, your uh, social media, your you know any dates that you have coming up, by all means. Yeah, they can they can find all that stuff on joshdennycomedy dot com, and, and definitely check out the podcast, The Implications of Josh Denny. That's what I'm putting a lot of my time into at the moment, and uh, that's a, that's a regular thing that people get from me uh, a few times a month, and uh, you know the. the Discussion ranges from a wide variety of things, and it's a, we always try to keep it funny and uh, entertaining. All right, perfect. All right, we appreciate you coming on. I, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I nailed all of my questions, especially the ones about uh, ginormous food. I got my place yeah. that I need to go to in Philly. 
my wife will love that because she she loves to sit and watch me eat like a savage. So. <laughs> yeah, I have one of those too, but I mine mine is a little more competitive. She she usually out eats me wherever we go. Nice. It's my kind of woman. <laughs> yeah, she just she just eats so slow. It's obnoxious. She was like, "You think I could do these competitions?" I go, "You'd run out of time." Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. <coughs> that is not me. I eat. I grew up on a. I grew up working on a farm, and it was eat as quick as you can because if not, you you don't get to eat anymore. So. Yeah, there's a time limit. Right? Oh, absolutely. You got, you got ten minutes. Whatever you can pound in ten minutes is all you get. Hmm. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. But we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, and, thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, no problem. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. And if anything, hopefully we get to see you soon if you do make uh, the trip uh, to this side of the uh, U.S. Yeah, if I get if I get a run put together out there, I'll, I'll definitely shoot you an email. Make sure you guys get tickets. Nice, awesome. Nice, All right. All right, man. All right, All right. we appreciate it. You Josh, have a good thanks one. Thanks a lot, man. Guys. Take it easy. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, that was Josh Denny. Yes, good interview. I wouldn't. He uh, he had a lot to say. Yes, I. <laughs> I used to love that show, so it's. It, I, yeah. I got a lot of my questions. I will say, like I, I'm definitely gonna check out that podcast. That podcast, it almost sounds kind of like what we do here. Yes, we talk about what's going on and then kind of make fun of it and yeah. talk about like. What I'm sure he's a lot do. funnier than us. Oh, oh, hands down. Yeah, <laughs> we're not even in the same no. swimming pool. Here. No, <laughs> we're in the the kiddie pool, and he's. Uh, He's doing big waves, yeah. So, Um, uh, all right. Well, we kind of pretty long. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, Bouldering PC, Instagram, Bouldering PC, Facebook under Joe Tom. We're on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Music, Podcoin. You nailed them all. Is that it? You you didn't even ask me for help on that one. You uh, just nice. And uh, go go visit Josh Denny's website. It's www Josh Denny Comedy. Did you write it down? I did not. I'm well, sorry. just rewind about 15 seconds and you can hear what he said. Yes. Make sure you listen to his podcast after yes. you listen to ours. Yes. And uh, if anything, I'm not sure if it's on syndication, or I don't know if you would call it syndication, but if it's on uh, if it's on the Food Network, go watch Ginormous Food because it is... Completely entertaining. Well, I went to that one place with the fucking grilled cheese. That sounds yeah. pretty fucking good. So, from all of us here to all of you sitting on your asses listening to yes. us. Unless you're standing. Unless you're standing. We're driving the car. Yeah. I am Joseph. I'm Tom. We'll see you next week.